Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You're listening to the Nova Scotia Mass Shooting, an ongoing series by the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners. As many of you know, I've been covering the Nova Scotia mass shooting since the events occurred in April of 2020. Since then, I've released in the area of 40 episodes exploring and examining the ever-evolving story of Canada's worst act of mass murder. But not even considering the horrific details of the story, this has been a challenge to share in podcast form, and I've already hinted to those problems in the opening. First off, this story, perhaps more than any other I can think of, is ever-evolving, with even the most fundamental details having shifted during the roughly two years since the killings. The official version, which has come primarily through RCMP statements and documents, has had more corrections, contradictions, and flat-out false statements than would seem possible. So, needless to say, as time passed and new information surfaced, my prior episodes quickly became out of date. Well, more than out of date, some details, once thought fact, have been proven to be pure fiction, inserted into the official narrative by unknown people for still uncertain reasons. The other problem with the prior episodes I've released has simply been the quantity. As the story changed and developments occurred, I released almost weekly episodes tackling the ever-changing beast. For those closely following, it's worked remarkably well, but for those new to the series, well, it's probably a bit overwhelming to have 50-ish hours of listening ahead of you before you get to the present version of the truth. So yeah, basically, I want to fix it, and the time to fix it is now. The timing, it's important now because this act of mass murder and the RCMP's handling of it are the subject of a public inquiry that's scheduled to begin late January. And how am I going to fix the problem with this series, you may ask? Well, the only option that made sense to me was to wipe the slate clean and start from the beginning, but with the benefit of hindsight. So here we are. For those interested in stumbling towards the truth with me, the prior episodes covering this story are and always will be available on the premium feed. But this episode that you'll hear tonight is going to be a new beginning, a fresh start. If you're new to this story, you're in the right place as I'm going to be starting right from the beginning. But even if you've been following along, this episode will have value as an organized recap of what happened. So let's get into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I'll present a condensed telling of the key moments that make up the Nova Scotia mass shootings of April 18th and 19th, 2020. We are a country that stands united in our effort to defeat a pandemic, to save lives, and to help each other make it to a better day. But yesterday, we were jolted from that common cause by the senseless violence and tragedy in Nova Scotia. This happened in small towns. Porto Peak, Truro, Milford, and Enfield are places where people have deep roots places where people know their neighbors and look out for one another. Now these communities are in mourning, and Canada 
is in mourning with him. We stand with you and we grieve with you. And you can count on our government's full support. Any telling of the Nova Scotia mass shooting must start with a short description of the rural community where the killing started. As a lifelong resident of Nova Scotia, I don't recall ever having heard of Portapique until I saw the initial news reports announcing an active shooter in the area. Portapique is located in Colchester County, and it's the kind of place you could easily drive by without even knowing it. With a population that hovers around 200 people in the summer, and much less in the winter, Portapique is what I'd casually refer to as a cottage country type setting that's quite literally in the middle of nowhere. These incidents happened in a rural area of Nova Scotia, which is Portapique in the community of Colchester County, which is in a central part of the province. This is a small community of about 100 people who live there year-round. These homes are set back from the roadways. Some are old, others are newer, and some are summer residents along the Bay of Fundy. This is a quiet and peaceful community. There are no sidewalks or street lights in that uh, particular area. As you can likely assume, in a community such as Portapic, most of the residents are known to each other on a first-name basis, and a lot of socializing happens, especially so in the summer months when the area takes on the feeling of a campground. Now, it's still uncertain the exact relationship the killer had with many of his victims, but it's been widely reported that they were all known to each other in one way or another, be it socially, romantically, or simply as familiar faces in very small town Nova Scotia. And now that we have a sense of the area, I suppose I should move on to the man at the center of the story. Gabriel Wartman was one of Portapique's many seasonal residents. Originally from neighboring New Brunswick, 51-year-old Gabriel Wartman originally trained as an embalmer before ultimately finding a career as a denturist. At the time of the Nova Scotia mass shootings, Wartman had two clinics in the Halifax area that he split his time between. One of them had a sort of apartment above it that he lived in, and when he wasn't in either, he was likely at his place in Portapique. And I, I should be more clear, actually, he had more than one place in Portapique. He had several and he seemed interested in purchasing more. Gabriel Wartman wasn't married at the time of his killing spree, although he had a long-term common-law partner named Lisa Banfield. Lisa worked with Gabriel at the denture clinic and handled a lot of the administrative aspects of the business on his behalf. Not a lot is known about their relationship other than that Gabriel was said to be controlling, unfaithful, and verbally and or physically abusive towards Lisa. But as you'll hear soon, their relationship is something many people want to know more about, and also something that a lot of people want kept secret, so we'll move on for now. Wartman, quite simply, was a complicated guy, known by many people for many different reasons. Of course, he was widely known as a denturist, but he was also a ravenous collector of motorcycles, someone who liked to party, a guy who had an appetite for women that seemed to overshadow his or their current relationship status. And, well, he had an obsession with police that went back to childhood. His high school yearbook write-up even made reference to his future likely being in policing. Well, this interest in policing becomes very important as we go along. Gabriel Wartman, of course, never became a police officer. 
but what he did do is become a collector of police paraphernalia. Most specifically, and in this case horrifically, he obtained police uniforms and purchased several decommissioned police cars from option. If you're unfamiliar with decommissioned police cars, I'll put it this way. In most places, when a police car is no longer used, its police-specific equipment is removed and it's sold at a government auction. The decals or stickers are removed, the roof lights and the radios are removed, and the glass that divides the front from the back seats also removed. So it's basically just a white car. Here in Nova Scotia, that's a white Ford Taurus the police use. Gabriel Wartman had at least four of these cars. But one in particular that he kept at his property in Portapique, he, he had fully restored to the point that it looked indistinguishable from a real RCMP car. Between several online marketplaces and calling in a favor or two from a friend who worked at a print shop, Gabriel Wartman was able to get everything he needed to make it happen. Now before we get much further, there's something else I should mention. Gabriel Wartman was also a collector of firearms. Although he wasn't licensed to use or possess them, he managed to collect several firearms, both handguns and rifles. So, for the most part, the stage is already set. We have Gabriel, the denturist with a police car, a firearms, and an at least complicated relationship bouncing back and forth between the Halifax area and Portapic. The last wrench we throw in this story is going to be timing. The events that I'm going to walk through occur in April of 2020. That's about a month into the first wave of COVID-19 here in Nova Scotia. At this point, people were locking down, businesses were either closed or closing, and, well, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Gabriel Wartman was clearly affected by it. He'd recently purchased several hundred dollars of gas, a quantity of rice, and converted several hundred thousand dollars of investments into cash that he was hiding. Paranoid? Maybe. But I don't think paranoid explains what's about to happen next. Now, as I go through this telling, I'm going to be pulling details from many different sources, both official and unofficial. One such source will be what's commonly referred to as the ITOs, which is an abbreviation for Information to Obtain a Search Warrant Document. In the simplest terms, police need to present information to justify the issuance of a search warrant. Shortly after Wartman's killing spree, a series of interviews were conducted and abbreviated versions were included in the ITO documents that were used to obtain warrants to search his properties. And portions of these documents have since been made public. Although Wartman's common law partner Lisa Banfield has never spoken publicly, the ITO documents show us that she did speak to investigators at least twice. And what we know about the night prior to the killing spree comes from the statements she made. According to Lisa Banfield, April 18, 2020 was her and Gabriel's 19th anniversary as a couple. With most businesses shut down related to the first wave of COVID, they spent the afternoon on a long drive together. Lisa didn't elaborate much about this drive, but it's very notable as several of the locations they drove past or commented on would be visited during the upcoming killing spree or connected to people that he did kill. Later that evening, after their drive, they returned to one of Wartman's Portapic properties referred to as the warehouse. Think of it as a sort of recreational-type man cave kind of place. While there, 
Lisa and Gabriel were having a sort of virtual get-together via FaceTime with a couple from Holton, Maine, a town on the American-Canadian border. During the call, Lisa and Gabriel shared that the following year, their 20th anniversary, they'd mark the occasion with some sort of commitment ceremony. I suppose an unofficial wedding type event. But one of the still unidentified friends on the call remarked, don't do it. And this, according to Lisa Banfield, was what set the tragic events that would follow into motion. Lisa was offended by the friend's remarks and announced that she was leaving, and she left the warehouse to walk a short distance away to the Portapic cottage. At about the halfway point, she felt bad about leaving and turned around to go back and apologize. When she returned to the warehouse, she found Gabriel very upset. Lisa explained she was mad at the friend's remarks and not mad at Gabriel, but then explained she's going back to the cottage and she's going to go to bed. At this point, she left Gabriel behind at the warehouse, walked to the cottage, and got into bed. But Gabriel wasn't far behind. Lisa told police that Gabriel walked into the bedroom, pulled her out of the bed, and began attacking her. During the attack, he ordered her to get dressed and was repeating, It's done, Lisa. It's done. Once dressed, he tied her hands up, dragged her into a spare room where he collected a pistol, and began pouring gasoline on the floors on the way out. Just as they exited, he lit the place on fire and began dragging Lisa back towards the warehouse where it all started. Lisa claimed she tried to fight him on the way, digging her feet into the ground and kicking him, but it was all in vain. The brief moment she did break free, she took just a few steps before she tripped and fell to the ground, leading Gabriel to remove her shoes and throw them into the woods, leaving her barefoot. And Gabriel's behavior only escalated as they neared the warehouse property. As he poured gasoline onto some of the vehicles in the driveway, he told Lisa he was going to burn the place, and then they were going to go into the city of Halifax. She suspected he planned to burn the properties they owned there as well. Lisa pleaded with him to stop, but again, his response that it was too late and there's no turning back. At this point, he began to restrain Lisa further. He attempted to put handcuffs on her. But as he did, to resist, she dropped her body to the ground. While on the ground, Gabriel fired his pistol twice, one shot hitting the ground on each side of her body. As she laid still on the ground, Gabriel pulled her up by her hair and forced her into the back seat of the fully restored replica police car, and he locked her in there. While in the back seat, Lisa watched Gabriel, now dressed in a police uniform, collecting firearms and ammunition that he had stored in the warehouse and loading it into the front seat of the car. Lisa claims that at one point, Gabriel went out of sight of the vehicle, and during that moment, she managed to slip out the window and run into the woods to hide. Now, it's important to note that at this point, the temperature was just above freezing. Lisa claims that she was barefoot and without a jacket, and that she found shelter under the exposed root system of a tree and stayed there for the night. Now, up until this point in the narrative, we followed Lisa Banfield's version of what happened that evening, the evening of April 18th. She claims she never saw Gabriel again, and the only other information she shared publicly relates to her actions when she came out of the woods the next morning. But we'll get to that a little later. The next part of this story, it's going to be a bit harder to tell as very few people who encountered Gabriel Wartman during this rampage lived to tell about it. Now, we don't know exactly when Lisa Banfield fled, but it seems likely that it was just prior to 10 p.m. 
What we do know is that after she left, other residents of Portapic began being targeted by Gabriel, and we know it all happened really fast. The first call to 911 reporting a shooting was made at 10.01 p.m. A terrified Jamie Blair reported her husband had been shot outside of her home. During this call, she clearly states the shooter was her neighbor, a denturist, who drives a police car. And she then went on to describe the police car that was in her driveway. There's police cars in the driveway? There are police cars. But he drives. He's a denturist and he drives like a... Okay, sorry, did you say there were police cars in your driveway? There is an RC. It's just a... At some point, she too was killed by Gabriel Wartman. At the time of preparing this episode, it's unknown if she was still on the line with emergency operators when the killing took place. But what we do know is that after the killings, Gabriel set fire to the house, and her young children, who were in the home with her, saw him do it as they ran for their lives, heading towards their neighbor's house. The exact timeline of what happened next is difficult to navigate, so I'm going to stick with what we know definitively. Sixteen minutes after Jamie Blair's call reporting her husband being shot, one of her children phoned 911 from their neighbor's house. The child explained that a man driving a police car burned his garage, killed both of his parents and his dog, and then lit the house on fire and left driving a police car. The child also explained that the owner of the house that he was phoning from, Lisa McCauley, left the house to see what was going on back at the Blair place. She would be found dead on her front lawn when police finally arrived. Now, the next relevant moment occurs six minutes later. It's now 10.22 p.m. A man phones 911, reporting fires in the area. He seems to be outside of Wartman's warehouse in his vehicle. During the 911 call, he begins to notice other homes on fire, and then he encounters what he thinks is a police officer. 911, what is your emergency? I am calling from uh, Portabic, and there's a... A house on fire down the road from our house. I just didn't know if somebody called already. Yeah, so you can see the house on fire? Yeah. What's the address? It's, I don't know the exact address. It's on Orchard Beach Road. Okay. Yeah, we've got a few calls there. So Orchard Beach Road in Port of Pitt, Colchester County. Yeah. yeah, we just drove down the road to check it out. But yeah, it's, uh, it's like a big garage. It's one of our neighbors. So he's probably not there. Okay, just one moment. I'm just going to connect you to fire to make sure, okay? Just one moment. Yeah. There's another house on fire here. You see two houses on fire? Yeah, we just drove by another house and their whole kitchen's on fire. Okay, I guess there's a police officer in the driveway. The two houses beside each other, sir? No, they're down the road. Like Down the road from each other? What's this? Yeah, and there's a police officer park at this driveway. I don't know what the... Like, he's coming around. I don't know if he's going to talk to me or what. Is it safe for that person to be on that road right now? been hard to listen to and to make out that call, but it's important for several reasons, and that's why I included it. It's the third time in 25 minutes we heard Gabriel Wartman described as being a shooter and in a police car. But it also gives a sense of the vulnerability the victims obtain due to his disguise as a police officer. 
Now, getting back into the timeline, just four minutes after this phone call was received, the first police arrived at the scene. As RCMP enter the Portapique area, they encounter the surviving victim from the call we just heard and begin to set up a roadblock on the main road leading in and out of Portapique. Now, little is known about the actual police activity in Portapique that night, but when the dust settles, they find many more victims than we heard described so far. In total, during a roughly 30-minute period between Lisa fleeing the warehouse and the police arriving to the scene, 13 people were killed. Jamie and Greg Blair, their neighbor Lisa McCauley, Peter and Joy Bond, Don Madsen and Frank Golechen, Elizabeth Thomas and John Zoll, Corey Ellison, Jolene Oliver and Aaron Tuck, and their 17-year-old daughter Emily Tuck. These victims all in the Portapic area, make up what is referred to as the first cluster of killings. This case, although described often as a mass shooting or a singular event, is in fact two separate and distinct events. At this point, we have several homes on fire, dead scattered throughout the neighborhood, and police believing they have the area contained. And that is the first of many mistakes they're going to make. There is a separate, sort of backdoor to Portapique area, often referred to as the Blueberry Field. It's widely believed Wartman used this road to exit the area. It's also worth noting that this route to the field would take him right past the Tuck House. If you're interested in seeing the route through the Blueberry Field, I drove it myself and documented it by video. You can see it on my YouTube channel, and I'll link to it in this episode's description. But I should also add that many people with knowledge of this story believe Wartman didn't need a backdoor and may have been able to simply drive past the police roadblock, possibly enjoying the benefits of his disguise. Well, for the remainder of the night, RCMP would evacuate some members of the community and begin investigating who was responsible for the bloodshed in the area and why did the series of calls mention a police vehicle. And as far as Gabriel Wartman, a surveillance camera films his vehicle entering an industrial area in nearby DeBert at 11.12 p.m., and it seems that he spent the night there in his car. Coincidentally or not, this is one of the areas he visited during the drive with Lisa earlier that afternoon. I'm going to pick up the story by following along closely with the police investigation as there's a lot to unpack in relation to what they did and what they didn't do between Wartman's first and second killing sprees. Again, as I've already mentioned, the first police to arrive to Portapic did so at roughly 10.26 p.m. Upon arrival, they encounter the man shot by Wartman, see several buildings and vehicles burning, find multiple victims, and of course have the knowledge of the two separate 911 calls made by Jamie Blair and her children describing Wartman in a cop car killing people and burning buildings. The RCMP, who controversially used their Twitter account as the sole means to notify the public, gave the first warning at 11.32 p.m. They published a tweet, and it stated, RCMP Nova Scotia is responding to a firearms complaint in the Portapique area. The public is asked to avoid the area and stay in their homes with doors locked at this time. Now, I'm trying not to editorialize, but to describe what they knew at this point as a firearms complaint simply boggles my mind. And then, considering how many residents of a remote Nova Scotia small community with spotty cell phone reception 
even use Twitter? Uh, that's a whole other story. So let's get back into it. The police investigation in Portapique primarily involved locating the cruiser the victims described during the 911 calls and finding the suspect, Gabriel Wartman, who they seem to believe was still in the area. A leaked copy of the documents that are going to be used in an upcoming public inquiry give a detailed account of this aspect of the story. Here's how it plays out. The first thing the RCMP did was confirm the vehicle being described by the victims wasn't one of their own. Staff sergeants in Colchester and Cumberland counties handled the task and confirmed that all RCMP cruisers in the area were accounted for. Meanwhile, officers were slowly making their way through Portapique, searching for Wartman, and during this search, they located two Ford Taurus vehicles at his properties, one at the cottage, and the other one was burnt out at his warehouse. Next, a few minutes after midnight, a constable Dorrington recognized the name of the suspect and recalled issuing him a speeding ticket just two months earlier, and he circulated a photo of his driver's license to fellow officers, as well as a description of the vehicle Wartman was driving during the speeding incident, another white Taurus with reflective tape down the side. The suspicion initially is that this vehicle, with the reflective tape, is the one that's being mistaken for a police cruiser. That suspicion, however, would be proven unfounded at 1.54 a.m. when officers from the Halifax Regional Police would check the parking lot of Wartman's Denture Clinic in Dartmouth and find a white Taurus with reflective tape down the side and a license plate matching the one from Dorrington's ticket. In this vehicle, it obviously wasn't involved as it had a thin, undisturbed layer of snow on top of it. Now I'm going to give another quick recap just so we're clear on the timeline as things are about to happen fast. At roughly 10 p.m., Lisa escapes and the killing starts. Roughly a half hour later, about 10.30 p.m., police arrive on the scene and meet the surviving victim who was shot while on the line with 911. Armed with the descriptions from the three separate 911 calls, they identify a suspect, Gabriel Wartman, and begin looking for a vehicle that resembles a police car. At 11.32 p.m., the RCMP Twitter account mentions a firearm complaint and warns people in the area to lock their doors. And then, for the remainder of the night, they have the Portapique area contained with no sign of Wartman or any sign of the police car he's said to be driving. What we know now, and what I think they should have known then and warned people about then, is that Wartman was no longer in Portapique. And at 6.30 a.m. the next morning, April 19th, he'd begin a second killing spree, and this time he wouldn't be contained to a small remote neighborhood. We don't know what he did all night, but at about 5.30 a.m., he'd left the DeBert industrial area and traveled to the community of Wentworth, specifically to the home of two of his friends, Alana Jenkins and Sean McLeod. Security cameras in the area captured his vehicle driving in the direction of their home, so we have a good time for that. And we have no way to know what happened in the home, as whatever happened didn't provide an opportunity for them to dial 911, and it ended with them both dead and their home on fire. Meanwhile, back in Portapique, a significant development would be made. At the time that Wartman was in the jenkins McLeod house, Lisa Banfield would come out of hiding. Just after 7 a.m., Lisa appeared at the door of Portapique resident Leon Jodry's home. Despite spending nine hours in the woods without a jacket or shoes, in temperatures hovering just above freezing, she seemed all right. 
Here's how Leon explained it to me in a prior episode of Nighttime. To me it did, yeah. She didn't have dirt on her. She looked in my eyes. I can picture her right now. She dressed in black with bare feet and she looked, she worked up and hysterical. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but now was she injured? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, of course. But physically in the face, blood, no, nothing. I couldn't see anything. She looked like she, I only met her twice. She looked like she always did mm-hmm. to me. Now, whether she had injuries, I don't know. Regardless of the circumstances regarding Banfield's return to the story, when she spoke with RCMP, they finally became aware of what was happening. Lisa explains that Gabriel owned a fourth Ford Taurus, and it was fully restored and practically indistinguishable from an authentic RCMP cruiser. She also explains that the last time she saw him, he was dressed in a police uniform and loading high-powered firearms into the front seat of the car. At nearly the exact same time, Halifax police, working in conjunction with the RCMP, would speak with Lisa Banfield's sister and her partner, who were also aware of the fully marked police car that Wartman had. They even gave the police a photo of it. So between Lisa and her sister, at 7.27 a.m. on the morning of April 19th, RCMP were fully aware of the unaccounted for, fully marked police car and a mass killer on the loose dressed as a cop. Yet, they didn't inform the public at this point. It was only after 6.30 in the morning or daybreak when a, vic- when a victim emerged from hiding after she had called 911. Our officers responded and it was at that time that through a significant, that significant key witness, we confirmed more details about Gabriel Wardman. This included the fact that he was in possession of a fully marked and equipped replica RCMP vehicle and was wearing a police uniform. We also learned that he was in possession of several firearms that included pistols and long-barreled weapons. Thirty minutes later, they do provide a second update, again solely via Twitter. They say RCMP Nova Scotia remains on scene in Portapique. This is an active shooter situation. Residents in the area, stay inside your homes and lock your doors. Call 911 if there's anyone on your property. You may not see the police, but we are there with you. Hashtag Portapique. Now, outwardly, they still seem to believe that Wartman's in Portapique. But internally, they have doubts. As that tweet is being sent... RCMP were sending a separate be-on-the-lookout warning to police across the province, notifying them of Wartman and the vehicle he was thought to be driving. Next, about an hour later, the RCMP would again post on Twitter. This time, at 8.54am, they share a photo of Wartman and reference multiple victims in an active shooter incident that he's involved in, but still no mention of the police car. Now, it's about this point that Wartman leaves the Hunter River property of Jenkins and McLeod that he's been at for the last several hours. What he was doing there, it's a pure mystery, but the speculation is that he was possibly looking for weapons or ammunition as McLeod was a firearms enthusiast. But again, that's pure speculation. What we do know is that as he leaves, around 9.30 a.m., he sets fire to the home with their remains still inside. After setting the Jenkins and McLeod house on fire, Gabriel Wartman would encounter their next-door neighbor, a retired firefighter named Tom Bagley, who approached the home to assist. Tom would pay for his willingness to help others with his life. 
he'd be shot dead on their front lawn. At 9.32 a.m., a 911 call would come in from another neighbor reporting smoke and gunfire. And the caller also reported seeing a car pass by shortly before her call. Three minutes later, at 9.35 a.m., another 911 call would be made. This caller explained that she heard gunshots and saw a police car leaving the scene. And she also described her neighbor Lillian Hislop laying motionless on the side of the road. It was an officer responding to this call that would be the first to encounter Wartman. At 9.47 a.m., a Corporal Peterson passed Wartman in his cruiser. He phoned dispatch to confirm it was Wartman, and he provided a description of what he saw. So clearly, at this point, 9.47 a.m., the RCMP must be aware that he's outside of Portapic, still disguised as a cop, still driving a replica cruiser, and he's still killing people. And he's far from done. Just minutes after passing Corporal Peterson, Wartman went to the nearby home of people that were known to him. While there, Wartman identified himself as a police officer while knocking on their door and windows. They, however, saw him and identified him from an upstairs window and didn't answer their door. Instead, they phoned 911 to report what was happened. But Wartman left before the real police arrived. The next time Wartman would turn up would be just 15 minutes or so later at 10.02 a.m., a woman phones 911 to report an emergency related to her friend, Heather O'Brien. The caller explained that she was just on a phone call with her friend, Heather, when Heather mentioned hearing gunshots and seeing a police car. Moments later, Heather began screaming and the line disconnected. Heather O'Brien would be found dead in her car off the side of the road shortly. And minutes after this 911 call, the RCMP again communicated via their Twitter account sharing a photo of Wartman's replica cruiser and providing a brief explanation on how to differentiate his car from the real police. Specifically, they highlighted the car number, which they obtained from the photos Lisa Banfield's sister and her partner provided a few hours earlier. Now, it's clear that the RCMP were beginning to realize this situation was far out of their control at this point. And the clearest sign of this is an incident that happened at the Onslow Belmont Fire Hall, a building which was being used to shelter Portapic residents that were evacuated the night prior. Now, a tremendous amount of mystery still covers this event, but for reasons still unknown, two RCMP officers stopped their cruiser outside of the fire hall, took protective cover in a ditch on the roadside, and began firing their high-powered rifles at another officer who was in front of the building, standing outside his cruiser. It's simply due to luck that no one was injured. But, man, what an embarrassment. Needless to say, things were happening very tragically and very fast this morning, and it's not about to slow down. At 10.42 a.m., just 20 minutes after the officer shot up the fire hall, Wartman's vehicle would be spotted traveling on Highway 2 in the area of Brookfield. In response to this information, one of the responding officers, Constable Heidi Stevenson, radioed another officer, Constable Morrison, and told him she'd meet him at a checkpoint that he was stationed at. It was the, the intersection of two highways in Shubenacadie. Just minutes later, Constable Morrison saw a police vehicle traveling in his direction, so he asked on the radio who was traveling towards him, and Constable Stevenson confirmed it was her. However, it was a misunderstanding. She was on her way to him, but she wasn't the vehicle approaching him. When Mortman pulled alongside Constable Morrison's cruiser, he began firing out his window and into Constable Morrison, hitting him several times. Miraculously, 
Constable Morrison managed to hit the gas and flee, escaping with his life. It's been said that the only thing that enabled him to maintain control of his car is the fact that he didn't let go of the wheel even after being shot just above the wrist. When he made it to an EMS site and let go of the wheel, he would begin bleeding profusely and lose feeling in his hands. Now, whatever it was, luck or other, that saved Morrison, Constable Stevenson was not so fortunate. Shortly after injuring Morrison, Wartman happened upon Stevenson and her cruiser, who of course was traveling towards Morrison at the time that Wartman shot him. Now, before I explain what happens next, let me tell you something else about Wartman's replica RC and pre-cruiser, and this may possibly speak to premeditation. There's a device you may have seen on some law enforcement vehicles, a sort of heavy metal cage that extends from and protects the front grille of the car. This device is called a ram bar or push bar, and it's installed specifically to protect the driver of the vehicle it's equipped to from front-end impacts. And Nova Scotia RCMP cruisers aren't equipped with push bars, only RCMP SUVs and larger vehicles. So keep in mind that Wartman, who carefully restored his vehicle to look identical to an RCMP cruiser, took an extra step and added a ram bar to his vehicle, and he used it to gain advantage over Constable Heidi Stevenson. As he approached her shortly after he shot Constable Morrison, Wartman entered Stevenson's lane and rammed her vehicle head-on. She survived the impact and managed to fire her pistol at him, but he hit her first and ended her life. As he approached her and took her firearm, an oncoming vehicle stopped, and we can only assume it stopped to help the police officers involved in a car accident. The Good Samaritan, Joey Weber, would end up in the backseat of Wartman's car, where he was shot and killed. Wartman then lit the cruiser on fire and fled the scene, now driving Joey Weber's stolen SUV. Another 15 minutes or so later, now 11.06 a.m., RCMP provided an update via Twitter, letting the public know that Wartman is now driving a silver SUV and ask anyone who sees it to call 911. In this tweet, they mention that he's traveling on Highway 2 from Brookfield, but that's another mistake. He was actually in Shubenacadie, visiting another one of the locations he stopped at during the drive with Lisa that prior afternoon. Lisa Banfield had told police that Gabriel had pointed out the window and mentioned, that's where Gina Galay lives. Lisa was familiar with Gina, as like Gabriel, Gina Galay was another denturist. But this time, Gabriel didn't drive past Gina's home, and she wasn't surprised to see him. Just prior to him arriving, she had phoned a family member asking them to come to her house, as she was worried having heard the news. But before her family arrived, Gabriel did, and he used force to enter her home, chased her briefly, and shot her to death in her bedroom. Before leaving the home, Gabriel would take additional steps to confuse whomever may be looking for him. He changed out of the police uniform that he'd been wearing, leaving it on the ground outside Gina's house, and changed into civilian's clothes and would leave in Gina's vehicle, a red Mazda, leaving Weber's silver SUV that the police were looking for behind. Shortly after he left, Goulet's family members would arrive to the home and find her dead. Now, we're getting to the end of Wartman's rampage, and we all have Gina Goulet to thank for it, I suspect. See, Gina was famous for keeping very little gas in her car. And fortunately, when Wartman stole it, the car was just above empty. 
he certainly wouldn't have enough gas to get into the city of Halifax where he seemed to be headed. Warman would first stop at a gas station in Elmsdale, pulling up alongside a tactical police vehicle that was in a neighboring bay. Warman, not knowing Goulet's car well, pulled up on the wrong side, but seemed to try to play it cool. He ran the gas pump awkwardly over the roof of the car as the police officers in the neighboring bay watched along. Wartman, realizing the pump wasn't going to reach the tank, gave up on it. He hung up the pump, got in the car, and drove off. Security footage shows the officers watch him driving away. And you wouldn't be able to convince me that this wasn't what led to what happened next. Wartman would drive up the highway to the next gas station, the big stop in Enfield. At 11.26 a.m., a little more than 13 hours after it started, Wartman pulled into the gas bay. But before he even had a chance to get out of Gina Goulet's stolen car, a tactical police vehicle pulled up alongside him. And as the vehicle rolled to a stop, officers jumped out and unloaded their pistols through Wartman's windshield, hitting him many times and killing him dead. But they still didn't take any chances. They pulled his body out of the car, cuffed his hands behind his back, and they let him bleed out face down on the pavement. At 11.40 a.m., RCMP posted another tweet, informing the public that Wartman was now in custody. In the end, this second cluster of killings, which took place on the morning of April 19th, led to Wartman killing nine more people, in addition to the unborn child one of the victims was carrying at the time she was murdered. After escaping Portapique, leaving a seemingly confused RCMP behind, Wartman ended the lives of Alana Jenkins and Sean McLeod, Tom Begley, Lillian Hislop, Kristen Beaton and her unborn child, Heather O'Brien, Heidi Stevenson, Joey Weber, and Gina Goulet. During the totality of this event, 22 people were killed. 22 innocent people were killed at the hands of a gunman, and three people were injured. To call this a tragedy would be an understatement. Some of those who lost their lives did so while trying to save others. They are true heroes. My goal in this episode is simply to lay out a detailed telling of what actually happened during Wartman's sprees. But there's so much more to the story that I didn't say. In fact, there's already about 50 hours of past nighttime episodes that explore this topic, speak to family members of victims, and speak to witnesses to some of the events that I've just described. But none of those episodes tell the story from start to finish like I did in this episode. And there's a good reason for that. Getting this story out to the public has involved a tooth and nail legal battle between the RCMP and a group of media outlets who seek to gain access to documents that the RCMP, up until now, have remained unwilling to provide without significant redactions. Then, to further complicate it, the information the RCMP has shared has either been inaccurate, misleading, or just downright false. For example, a police investigation into the shooting death of Gabriel Wartman seems to tell an entirely different story than what was seen on CCTV footage that was leaked by an insider in the months after the police investigation ended. In fact, there's been so little information shared and so much dissatisfaction with the RCMP's handling of this tragedy that the families of the victims loudly and effectively pressured the government into granting a public inquiry into what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and what could have been done to prevent it. 
That inquiry is scheduled to begin late January 2022, and I'm confident that new details and clarification will come out of the hearings. In fact, new information may be made public even prior to that, as I've already received a cache of confidential inquiry-related documents that were leaked by an insider. I used them in building this timeline you just heard, so I'm confident that my telling is largely in line with what the official story is going to be if and when the dust settles. I think the Mass Casualty Commission now knows what happened. What really happened? The question is, will we ever learn that? Before I end this, I want to be clear. I know this episode was graphic, and I breezed past many horrific tragedies. But the point of this wasn't to tell a salacious horror story. The point of this episode is simply to provide a foundation for my continued coverage of this case. Those new to the story can start here and have a good sense of the many moving parts. And again, I plan to continue covering this case as the upcoming legal proceedings play out. Every Sunday night at 9.15 p.m. Atlantic Time, which is 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll be live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel with investigative journalist Paul Polango. Each week, we'll be discussing recent developments in this case. If you don't make it to the live streams on YouTube, those sessions will be released as episodes days after. We have a public inquiry in late January... And then, at some still undetermined date, Wartman's partner, Lisa Banfield, will face charges that were laid against her related to supplying Wartman with ammunition. And I'm very curious about that case, as Lisa Banfield has yet to speak publicly, despite intense criticism from nearly every direction. So I'm sure we'll get back to that later. But ultimately, the largest question the public has is why the RCMP did not use the emergency alert system. That's a system in which messages are sent to all phones and televisions in the area, regardless of if someone uses Twitter. I hazard to think of how that could have affected the events that played out on April 19th. And with that, I'll end this episode of Nighttime. First, I want to express my sincerest condolences to all the victims of this tragedy and everyone who loved them. I only hope that you receive answers to any questions you have and that anyone who enabled Gabriel Wartman in any way face the fullest extent of our justice system. Now, before we part, let me thank those who make this show possible. A thank you to Monty Data, who composed the theme music. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. A thank you to all the journalists and advocates who revealed the true story behind this tragedy. And a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. If you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please subscribe to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to find here on the free feed, as I'm adding exclusive content weekly. For about the price as I'm adding exclusive content regularly. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep the show alive by subscribing to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest supporters of the show. Haley, Tanya, Jennifer, Jeff, Blueberry, and Tattooed Shepherd. Thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes on social media 
and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on this episode, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact or find me on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.